There is a power that comes from the Holy Spirit. We have to look to God in our time of trouble. Stop trying to barter with the Lord. God can do anything. We've got to believe that today. And understand that Jesus is King and Lord, and He knows what is best for he you. He did everything that He needed to do. His final words are, it is finished! Um, so, talking about fire quenchers, and what I'm referring to here is things that actually hinder and even stop the flow of the Holy Spirit. Things that extinguish the fire of God. And we think about it, is it actually possible that we as human beings can stop what God wants to do? That's a good question, isn't it? But the truth is, the Bible says absolutely. In 1 Thessalonians 5.19, it's, it's an amazing verse. One translation says, quench not the spirit. The God's word translation says, don't put out the spirit's fire. So we can quench the spirit. We can put out the spirit's fire. What an amazing responsibility that we have as believers. And there's so many different uh, scriptures that we could refer to that talk about this. You know, In Acts 7, 51, it talks about how the Jews would always resist the Holy Spirit. They were uncircumcised in their heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit is what Stephen said to them. In Hebrews 10, 29, the writer admonishes us to not do despite unto the spirit of grace. Ephesians 4, verse 30, another classic example that says, and do not grieve the spirit of God by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't quench. Don't put out the spirit's fire. The secret of revival, it's, it's, it's very simple, really. The secret of revival is this, that we as an individual, a church, even a nation, will experience revival when we are able to learn to stay continually connected to the presence of God. We're called to a life of constant communion, of uninterrupted fellowship, a life where we are not just, uh, you know, having encounters with God. We need encounters. It's very important. But we learn to actually have an abiding, intimate relationship with him. Encounter is important. And even in that place of having an intimate relationship with God, we can experience encounters. But we recognize that this is about a place of staying connected to the power source, so to speak. That's what revival is. We're called to create a sustainable environment where the presence of the Lord not only abides, but increases in intensity. See, the new covenant is all about experiencing the presence and the glory of God in an ever-increasing fashion. I'm going to talk a little bit today about the presence of God and how we are called to live in the presence. We're going to look at some of the great uh, people in the Bible and how they cried out for God's presence more than anything else. We're going to look at Moses. We're going to examine Jesus. We're going to look at the early church. And we'll see very clearly that there was such a hunger to live in the presence, to abide in the presence, to be in that place of communion with God constantly, more than anything else. So the early church learned to cultivate an atmosphere of heaven on earth. 
they understood that they were called to be the abode of the presence of God. Ephesians 2, 22 says this, in whom you are being built together for a habitation of God through the spirit. You're being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The word habitation or dwelling means to house permanently. So it speaks not of visitation, but of habitation. It speaks of a place where we're constantly living in the presence and God is in us and we are in God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 in the Amplified says this, And all of us, as with an unveiled face, continue to behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And we are being transformed or transfigured into his very own image in ever-increasing splendor from one degree of glory to another. This is what God's will is for our lives. You know, most Christians, they experience the presence of God just on certain occasions, special occasions. Maybe they go to, you know, what we would call a, a presence encounter or, or even just going to church on Sunday or maybe uh, during a time of worship in their home. But God wants to change that in your life. He wants you not to just experience visitation but habitation. He wants you to live in that place where the presence of God is something that is the norm. It's the new normal for you. It's something that you're not aspiring for in the sense that you're chasing after it, you're wanting it to happen, you're wishing it would happen, but it is happening in your life. And then from that perspective, the only responsibility that we really have is to make sure that we guard that experience, that we, we protect that from being taken from us. And hence, the New Testament admonishments, quench not the spirit, don't grieve the spirit, don't resist the spirit, don't do despite unto the spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's God. The Father and the Son are, are, are in the heavenly places. They sent the Holy Spirit into the world. The scripture tells us for the believers so that he might abide with us continually. That's what it says. Not that you might experience random visitations, occasional encounters. But Jesus said, I send you the Holy Spirit that he might abide with you continually. Constantly. Always with us. Living in that place. So it's a place where we quench not the Spirit. But the Bible warns us, don't quench the Spirit. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. And I know there are very overt and blatant ways in which we, all of us, that from time to time clearly grieve the Holy Spirit. We get angry. We, we think negative thoughts. We, we perhaps, um, you know, do something very selfish. And that grieves the Holy Spirit, clearly. But I also think there's very subtle ways that we maybe unwittingly are quenching the Spirit of God. In fact, the Holy Spirit is likened unto a dove, isn't he? And the dove came and rested on Jesus, and the Bible says, and remained upon him. So the dove didn't just come upon Jesus when he was baptized in the river Jordan and then leave and flee. If you read John's gospel, it actually says that the dove remained on him. The presence of God remained on him. The word says, I lighted, he literally stayed with him. 
So Jesus lived in a place of constant communion where he never grieved the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine? Not once did Jesus grieve the Holy Spirit. Not in his thoughts, not by his actions, not by his words. Never once did he grieve the Holy Spirit. Wow. So don't quench the Spirit. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. There's two ways in the natural you can put out a fire. You can suffocate a fire or you can starve a fire. What do I mean by that? You can throw a wet blanket on a fire. You can use a fire extinguisher to put it out. Or you can simply stop stoking the fire, putting fuel on the fire, and eventually it will burn out by natural cause. But either way, the fire goes out. And the truth is, as Christians, we have a responsibility to not grieve the Spirit, not quench the Spirit, to make sure that we are not only doing those things that are like throwing a wet blanket on the fire of God, but also that we are stoking, we are adding fuel to the fire. I love the passage in Leviticus 6. We won't go there, but it talks about how the priests are to make sure that the fire in the altar never goes out. It's to burn continually. And it says the, the way their responsibility was is that they were to bring a sacrifice, yes, but that they had to bring the wood first to make sure that the fire is burning. So it's our responsibility because in the New Testament, we're all priests to make sure that the fire never goes out. It must burn continually. Stoke it. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Keep the fire burning. The New Testament church aggressively, and I use that word intentionally, aggressively guarded the presence of the Lord in their midst. They aggressively sought after and guarded the anointing on their lives. Because they realized without the anointing, without the presence, they're just another club. They're just another gathering. There's nothing different than any of the other religions of that time. Now, certainly their theology and their methodology was, was different how they worshiped, but ultimately it was the presence of God that set them apart. And the same is true today. We don't have a problem in our culture, so to speak, with, with the harvest not being ready, not being ripe. There certainly is. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying... That, that we are in a time where, where things are as, as conducive to, or toward Christianity it was in previous generations. It's not. I recognize that. But I will say this, that people are spiritually minded today. The problem is that it's not that they aren't spiritually minded. So many people are spiritually minded today. They're more open to spiritual things than ever before. But the reality is they've never encountered God. They've never encountered the right spirit, the Holy Spirit. And God wants them to encounter the right spirit, the Holy Spirit. And the spirit of God is much more powerful than any other spirit. And there's absolutely nothing that these spirits can offer or, or, or they cannot compare to what it means to have a true encounter with God. But before they, who are non-Christians, who are non-believers, pre-Christians, whatever term you want to use, will encounter God that way, we have to know him that way. As Jesus said, I am the light of the world. 
He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. But then later on, after he had discipled his followers, he said, you are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill. Now you go and you shine the light. You bring my presence. You reveal my anointing. So the New Testament church guarded the anointing more than anything else. So did Jesus. There's an amazing passage of scripture. I want to look at it. It's actually just one verse. It's found in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. I'm going to look at it in the Amplified Bible. It actually speaks about the fact that Jesus was heard. And it was not only because he cried out, not only because he prayed with tears, even though this, this verse is very clear, but it says he was heard because of, depending on what translation you read, his godly fear, his piety. Now, the word that is translated fear or piety here is not the normal word in the Greek language. It's not phobos. It's a different Greek word. And it is a very interesting word when you study it closely. It actually speaks about being cautious, being concerned, being careful, living circumspectly. So Jesus experienced answers to his prayers Jesus was heard by his father because of his life of living cautiously, of being a concerned, being careful, and walking circumspectly. So what was it that he was being circumspect about? In that he shrank from the horrors of separation from the bright presence of the father. There's no intimation in the, in this, in the New Testament, or if you really read the 22nd Psalm that talks about Jesus being crucified and all the suffering that he would go through. When you read that passage, when you read Isaiah 53, there's nothing in those passages that in any way would indicate that Jesus would pray to be saved from the mere act of dying. In fact, Jesus himself contradicted that notion when he said in John chapter 12, 27 and 28, when he was speaking about how he was about to go to the cross, he said, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He wasn't asking to be saved from death. Some of us, we, we look at that passage in, in Matthew 26 when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, verse 38 and 39, he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and watch with me. My soul, my emotions, my psyche is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. What? He was sweating as it was great drops of blood. One theory is that Jesus at that point had experienced an enlarged and ruptured heart and his heart had actually exploded. The pericardium sac, had, the water had been released and the water and the blood were now mixed together and hence he was sweating as it was drops of blood. One of the accounts says that the angel came and ministered to him in that condition, perhaps because if the angel did not come and intervene, Jesus would have actually died in the garden. But he had to go to the cross. He couldn't die in the garden. So when Jesus cries out, 
And he goes a little further after he had said this and he falls with his face to the ground and he prays, verse 39, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. You see, some of us have heard that Jesus was asking his father, Lord, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to die this type of, of death. But that would contradict clearly what he said earlier. Am I saying, Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I came. Father, glorify your name. So he was not asking that he would not have to go to the cross. He was praying that the father would remove the cup. And what was the cup? What was the thing that he dreaded the most? What was the thing that was so precious to him that, that Jesus more than anything else did not want this to happen? And he said, Father, if it's possible, if it's possible that I don't have to go through this pain, if I don't have to go through this anguish, if I don't have to go through this, if there's any way that you can just help me and, and, and do this, then, then do it. But if not, let not my will be done, but let yours be done. What is it? He feared the hiding of the father's countenance. The cup of death he prayed to be freed from was not corporal, but spiritual death. That is the temporary separation of the human soul from the light of God's countenance. Wow. Jesus did not know what it was to not experience the presence of God. He didn't know. Even when he was a child, we know the Bible says in, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 52, that he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. The word favor is the Greek word grace. He increased in grace. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of grace. There is no grace without the Holy Spirit. Hence, he increased in the presence, in the presence. Even at 12 years of age, he knew what it was like to live in the presence of his father. Constant communion, uninterrupted flow. Jesus goes to the cross. All of your sins, my sins, the sins of our worst enemies, the sins of the past, the present, and all future were placed on him. The one who knew no sin became a sin offering for us so that we would become the righteousness of God. And when all that sin was heaped on him on the cross, at that point, the father turned his back. The father and the son could no longer have fellowship or communion. And we know the words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The heartbrokenness that Jesus went through. Father, more than anything, I love your presence. I need your presence. I must have your presence. I cannot live without your presence. Moses, Exodus 33, tells us 
that after the rebellion of the people, the word of God came to Moses. Moses, depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up into a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go with you in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are stiff-necked people. Woo! God was pretty serious, wasn't it? Intense. I'm going to give you, what did he say? I'm going to take you into the promised land. But I'm not going with you. You'll still experience the fulfillment of the promise, but I'm not going with you. But Moses would not settle for the promise without God's presence. So Moses cries out in verses 12 and 13, you have been telling me, lead these people but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. Then listen to this, verse 13. If you are pleased with me, teach me your way so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. So look at, look at this for a moment. Look at his prayer. He's saying, look, if you're pleased with me, teach me your ways. Teach me your ways. If you are pleased with me, God, teach me your ways that I may what? Continue to find favor. Most Christians today are settling for the promise in a sense, but not the presence. Most of us, if we were Moses, would we not say, God, we understand completely. You have every right to be upset with us we get it. You don't want to go with us. That's okay. We'll live with that. As long as you still take us into the promised land, all good. But Moses said, no deal, God. No. No deal. Unless your presence goes with us, do not take us up. And here's what happens. After he cries out, about knowing the ways of the Lord and continuing to find favor. The Lord answers him in verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Think about that for a moment. God, how do I continue to know you and find favor with you? I want to know you. I want to find favor with you. And God says, my presence will go with you. The answer is that the presence of God with us causes us to know his ways and to continue to find favor. Does that make sense? How many, does that make sense? If it doesn't make sense, I'll unpack it further. God's presence with us is when his promise of his presence with us was the answer to Moses' cry, God, if I have found favor with you and if I am, uh, you know, if you are pleased with me, then... Teach me your ways so I can continue to find favor with you. Answer is, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses, I cannot answer that prayer without my presence going with you. 
Moses, even if I fulfilled my promise and I did send my angel and took you up into the promised land, it would still not fulfill your request. My, your, the, the answer to your prayer is predicated on my pro- presence being with you. There's no other way. So we want to be blessed. We want promotion. We want prosperity. We want favor in life then what we have to understand, what God is saying here is if we want to continue to know his ways, how to grow in influence, grow in grace, grow under the blessing of God, we have to seek after his presence. But I just want the blessing. I just want money in my bank account. I just want a, I just want a, a powerful ministry. I just want, no, 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 none of that matters. If you have the promise and you don't have the presence, then you've not obtained the possession. You don't have what God wants you to experience because in his presence is where the blessing is. In the, pres- in the presence of God is where the blessing is. So what ends up happening is Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? What a powerful thing. What will distinguish, the NIV says, what will distinguish us from any of the other people on the earth unless your presence goes with us? Now, that's, that's the reality, guys. It's not, even though it's important to have sound theology, even, it, it, look, it's not our methodology, it's, it's not our, our ecclesiology, it's not our theology, it's not any of these things that distinguish us from other people when it comes to other groups, other faith per se. But what causes people to notice the difference is the presence of God with us, the presence of God. Oh, wow, your theology's different. I want to join. Well, yes, but more than that, people can understand the gospel because it is a pure message. It's powerful. There's no other message like it, that God sent his son to die for us so we don't have to do anything, but we just have to believe. That's a powerful message. And so in a sense, that's true, obviously, but there has to be something more. There has to be something that actually proves, that validates this message. So it says in Acts 2.22 that God literally endorsed Jesus of Nazareth. He he was accredited to the people through signs and wonders and miracles. In Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, it talks about how God actually bore witness to the gospel through signs and wonders and miracles. There's a place where the presence of God has to step in. And so for us, we need to be more hungry, more desirous for the presence and person of God than we are for his promises and provision. What do we want more? I think most, there are many Christians and, and particularly I, I see this where I'm from originally, from, the, from North America, there is such an emphasis on the promises and on the provision. Emphasis on, on the promises. God's going to bless you. God's going to lift you up. He's going to exalt you. He's going to give you favor. He's going to cause you to be the head and not the tail. He's going to prosper you. You're going to be this, this, and that. And so little, if any, preaching in many of those circles about the presence of God. 
about knowing him, walking in his presence. And so I believe in all honesty that many of those people, they don't even know what it means. There is, there is a, a segment of Christianity in certain places in the world that has, has learned to, to embrace the preaching and the teaching about the promises and the provision of God, and they are absolutely disconnected and unaware of what it means to live in his presence. Wow. Well, it's in his presence where there's fullness of joy. It's in his presence where we have rest. It's in his presence where he says, you know, the times of refreshing are. It's in his presence that we actually are promoted. It's out of that place that we experience all that God has for us. So this morning, I want to just leave us with this thought. What does it mean for you? to go a day, a week, perhaps even longer for some of us, living without a conscious awareness of the presence. How can we do this? Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. Let me close with this. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, God's promises. He said that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Correct? One translation says that the earth will be filled with an awareness of the glory of the Lord. An awareness of the glory of the Lord. God wants us to live in a place of awareness of the glory of the Lord. Does that make sense? An awareness, he's with me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. John 8, 29. The one who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone. Jesus was constantly aware of the presence of the Father. Hallelujah. Switch to Spectrum Mobile and get unlimited data for only $29.99 per month each when you get two or more lines. You could save hundreds on your mobile bill. Plus, there are no added taxes, hidden fees, and no contracts. Click to try the Spectrum Mobile Savings Calculator, and in three easy steps, you'll see how much you could save. Visit SpectrumMobile.com save. Offer valid for new customers on two or more unlimited lines. Spectrum Internet required. Restrictions apply. Visit SpectrumMobile.com for details.